1: Cyberbit is offering cyberwire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com/cyberwire. Sensitive NSA files appear to have been obtained by Russian intelligence services and there are claims Kaspersky's software was the gateway to compromise. The Las Vegas massacre investigation expands to consider possibility of accomplices. A new password stealer is out in the wild. The NFL Players Association data is exposed. The FCC was mostly advised by bots on net neutrality and bots who haven't benefited from DeepMind's ethics class. I'm Dave Bittner in Washington, D.C. today with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, October 5th, 2017. We are at the museum in Washington DC attending the 2017 R Fund conference with our partners at Recorded Future. Just a few hours ago, the Wall Street Journal broke the story of a major security incident at the US National Security Agency. Russian intelligence services are said to have obtained highly classified material related to both network attack and network defense from a machine belonging to a contractor on which the sensitive information had been placed. The most interesting aspect of the story is that the hackers targeted the contractor after, quote, identifying the files through the contractor's use of a popular antivirus software made by Russian-based Kaspersky Lab, end quote. Remember, the story's just breaking, and so details are likely to be clarified and corrected later. The breach is said to have occurred in 2015, but wasn't discovered until spring of last year. Presumably, this means spring of 2016. To put this on a timeline, NSA would have discovered the problem weeks before the shadow brokers began leaking what the brokers assert are equation group hacking tools. It's also shortly before the summer 2016 arrest of Hal Martin, the NSA contract worker who was allegedly found to be hoarding highly classified material in a shed at his Glen Burnie, Maryland home. The material the shadow brokers have leaked appear to date to 2013 or so. It's unclear whether this latest revelation is connected to either the brokers or Mr. Martin's case. The U.S. government a few weeks ago directed federal agencies to get rid of Kaspersky security products from their networks, or at the very least demonstrate some very good reason why they should continue to use them. Administration accounts of the ban, issued by the Department of Homeland Security, have all concentrated on Kaspersky's requirement under Russian law to cooperate with security, intelligence, and law enforcement agencies, and that indeed would seem to be sufficient grounds for booting their products from government networks. This latest development would appear to indicate that there are indeed other grounds for suspicion of Kaspersky Lab and its products. Kaspersky has long maintained its innocence of nefarious cooperation with the Russian organs – it's possible their products may have been subverted without their knowledge. It happened to vast, after all. But few of the initial reactions to this latest story seem to credit that explanation. The news is still fresh and breaking, however, and we'll be following it closely. However it plays out, it's bad news indeed for the U.S. intelligence community and the National Security Agency in particular. Zscaler has discovered a password stealer spreading through a compromised website. The malware is delivered by VBScript, which, after downloading the malicious payload, downloads a decoy document, terminates Microsoft Word processes, installs the payload through PowerShell, and removes document recovery entries of Microsoft Word. There's a Quaker State angle to the exploit. The decoy document represents itself as a public service message from the Pennsylvania Department of Public Welfare. It even helpfully contains advice on mitigating spam, and include spam mitigation instructions. The malware steals passwords from Armory Wallet, Chrome, Firefox, Qt FTP, FileZilla, PuTTY, Electrum Wallet, and WinSCP passwords. In the U.S., the Department of Homeland Security decries a growing public learned helplessness over cyberattacks and data breaches. One case of data compromise that has been confirmed occurred in the U.S. It was discovered by the security firm Cromtech, and like several other recent cases, comes down to an enterprise leaving an unsecured database exposed on the internet. In this case, the enterprise in question is the National Football League Players Association. About 1,200 players and agents had their personal information compromised in an unsecured Elastisearch database. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we are on location at the R Fund conference in Washington DC, hosted by our partners at Recorded Future. It's been a day full of interesting programs and speakers focused on threat intelligence, and we had the opportunity to speak with Joe Coleman, cyber threat intelligence analyst at PepsiCo. The breadth of a company the size of PepsiCo you have you have shipping, you have manufacturing, you yeah. have h r and you must have an eye on all of those things
0: we have to there there's no no room for error or no room for not being able to see i 'm very well trained military in military intelligence i 've studied this back forth sideways i 've been to combat about it, so now explaining that concept to civilians in a corporate environment that is challenging so one of the things that is perhaps the biggest challenge for veterans such as myself is putting it into those terms that people can understand such as instead of we're talking about the enemy combatants are doing this we have to look at it from a risk perspective Mm. what is the risk of this happening how can we prevent or mitigate that risk? You know, those are that's those are big questions, and you know that's a big thing for I'm sure a lot of folks in DoD and uh, the services listen to CyberWire. Like I know they do definitely down at Fort Meade. So, you know, if you want it, there's a job pro tip for them: be able to translate your skills into civilian speak. You know, that's a that's probably a good big pro tip.
1: That that comes up a lot. And also the notion of um, exactly what you touched on, of being able to communicate, not in terms of threats of being, you know, red, yellow, green, but in Mm -hmm. terms of, particularly when you get to the board level of dollars and cents of of risk, you know, what is the actual risk to the company here Mm -hmm. in a way that um, people who are used to talking about risk can understand?
0: Yes. It's about having a Rosetta Stone. To say, to to put it in context, Mm -hmm. having that Rosetta Stone from being able to translate, say, the military term priority intelligence requirement, which is basically what is the top risks to my company, you know, label that something else label it risk assessment or possibilities or something along those lines. That's what we have to be able to do is have that Rosetta Stone language that, one, we use internally within the intelligence section or within the fusion center, and then you have to have something to translate that to the business side. And that's where I think we, as Intel analysts right now, are not doing a great job at. Hmm. We're not explaining that, and I can only speak for my own personal experience, we're not really doing a good job with that, and it's be, and it's because we're not really translating that well that they're not seeing the value. Or you have some, or sometimes you have the issues where you don't want to dilute the term intelligence, because if you look at what's going on now, you have intelligence as a cloud, as a AI, as You know, whatever it may be, we want to be able to preserve what intelligence is because it is a discipline. You know, it's been around for 6,000 plus years. It's like machines do a very awesome job of correlation, at least machine correlation, and do a great job of organization, putting things into somewhat of a context. But it's the person with their experience With repeatable analytical tradecraft, which is something a lot of people go to school or they have some intuition about, they put that together and they're able to take information into intelligence. Uh, Look at it as a formula. So information plus analysis equals intelligence. These are the things that we want to be able to translate to the business. We're not dealing with mortars and IEDs and all that, but we are dealing with people who want to take information and commoditize it. And that's probably the biggest thing that we see a lot just in cyber intelligence is let's take something that may seem innocent and seemingly harmless. But when we combine that with other information, we get some, something that's worth a lot of money.
1: That's Joe Coleman from PepsiCo. We'll hear more from him on an upcoming episode of the Recorded Future podcast. You will no doubt recall that the U.S. Federal Communications Commission sought public comment on its proposed revisions to net neutrality regulations. So far, so good, right? And what better way to get comments than online, right? Digital democracy that Ross Perot or Arthur C. Clarke would love, right? Well, not right. Unless we're extending the franchise to AI. Of the 22 million comments on net neutrality the FCC received, data analytics firm Gravwell says only 17% appear to be genuine. The other 83%? Bots. Google's DeepMind AI shop is convening a panel of experts in ethics and various allied fields to help allay fears, voiced by Elon Musk, among lots of others who've also drunk deeply of the Terminator franchise as well, that artificial intelligence is going to be the death of us all. The idea is to design in goodness from the get-go so the AI won't turn out evil. Sort of the way Microsoft's edgy teeny chatbot Tay did, we're in no particular position to either discount Musk's fears or cry victory for DeepMind's robotic pelagianism, but we will watch their deliberations and recommendations with interest. Visit CloudFlare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Uh, Justin, welcome back. You know, we talk about uh, insider threats quite a bit here on the Cyber Wire, and uh, you wanted to make the point that perhaps some businesses aren't giving them
2: the attention they deserve. Yeah, I think that there's a systemic problem here in the industry, and the systemic problem is that uh, many organizations are—they're thinking about the bad guys that exist outside of their network—and what we've seen is a, a very marked spending trend to build up the walls even higher on the perimeter. And, and Dave, you've done a lot of great work with uh, with interviews talking about how that's actually a bad thing to continually build up the perimeter. That you actually need to build up the perimeter and. Uh, and build layer defenses so that if attackers do get in, then there's not a soft inside. But it's still, companies are thinking in terms of bad guys coming from the outside in. And they address insider threat or uh, employees or partners or vendors who already have access within their environment through business processes, But uh, there is a growing trend of more employees that are downloading toolkits. They're downloading uh, means to circumvent these controls, the business process controls on the existing uh, systems they have in order to uh, accomplish a nefarious mission or in order to do something against corporate policy. And really, one of the better ways to address that sort of behavior is to formulate a, a strong insider threat program.
1: You use the term nefarious there, and certainly there are people who are inside organizations up to no good, but I think I think you'd agree that a lot of people just want to get their job done, and uh, if IT says no to them, like you say, they're, they're going to find a way around that.
2: The risk we see with that, and my mind, Dave, immediately went to shadow IT, the things like Dropbox uh, not used for corporate purposes or installing their own uh, software that could or may be uh, against company policy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the pitfall with that approach is that those sorts of technologies have an inherent risk or, or risk of data exposure that corporate it or the corporate security programs may not know that you're running that therefore there is a the insider meaning the employee who just wants to get their job done who feels like they need to install uh, a file sharing application like that if there's a new vulnerability Or if they perhaps take their laptop home and are using that both for personal and work, uh, it's very easy for them to be either fished or very easy for them to be uh, exposed, so that uh, adversaries could gain a foothold onto their system and then ride quote ride in with them um, when they go into uh, the main corporate network. So sometimes, like you had said, insiders may not be malicious; they may not be looking to do something nefarious, and That's why at Accenture we consider both insider threat to be direct and and indirect, meaning willful and accidental.
1: Right. So how do you find the balance between putting uh, appropriate restrictions on people but not slowing them down so much that they're going to seek out ways around the restrictions that you put on them?
2: Well that's the uh, that's the $50,000 question that we that we struggle with all the time in cyber defense and cybersecurity. Uh, I will say that the advice that I give to my clients is that really focus on drawing security in as early as possible and What we've seen historically is a company wants to, let's say, put out a new app. They want to put out an app that does, that accesses sensitive data, that does various things for their customers. And... In the old days, I mean, five to ten years ago, heck, probably people are doing this today, uh, the dev team would get together and build the requirements, and they would build it all the way up until they were ready to go to production. And then the change management process would say, well, do you have security sign-off? And then they would have to go back to security and say, can you please approve this? We have this um, business imperative, et cetera, et cetera. The new is, uh, as you've heard a lot, is to use something called uh, DevOps or an, an agile approach to development. Very iterative, changing stuff on the fly. And our advice, or one of the big pieces of advice that we give customers, is embed security within that DevOps process so that very early on you have a security leader or you have a security team member that can be part of those daily scrums, that can be a part of the normal development process. So when it does get to uh, to production and or when they when they are looking at various means to secure that or to put in the proper business processes to prevent a, a risky situation, it's already built in or baked into that uh, development process.
1: All right. Good advice as always. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program?